0: now to our scripture for this morning, working our way through the book of 1st Kings. This morning we're in 1st Kings 14 verses 21 to 31. You'll find the words for that on the top of the page in the hymnal we were just singing from, or on the hymn sheet rather. 1st Kings 14 verses 21 to 31. Before we read that together, let's pray. God, your word is light And so we pray that you would shine your light on your word, that we may have light along our path, that you would lead us and guide us by your word, even this morning, as you would instruct us in what to avoid and in the dangers of idolatry, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings 14, starting in the 21st verse, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord had chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, in which to put his name. His mother's name was Naamah, she was an Ammonite. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones, and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assigned these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards bore the shields and afterward they returned them to the guardroom. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah, she was an Ammonite. And Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. It's good for us to remember what the book of Kings is and its purpose, and so the book of Kings is, again, uh, history, but not mere history. It's theological history. It's history with a point. And the point is to inform the people of Judah how they've gotten themselves into trouble and to give them hope that at some time in the future they're going to be brought out of trouble. And so the, the book is written to the Israelites as they find themselves in exile in Babylon. And so these, the, the Jewish people, separated from their northern brothers who had broken away from them under Jeroboam, are reading this book, and you can almost hear them snickering as you read through the first part of the chapter, because the first part of the chapter tells us about the rise and fall of Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had become the enemy. And so they would have perhaps even relished the story of the destruction of these historic enemies. But before they get too uppity, the author has a message for them. He he turns the the flamethrower of his critique on the southern kingdom and says to them, there's a perfectly bad report about you as well. But the report really begins in what seems to be A rather normal way. It tells us that Rehoboam was king; that he became became king when he was 41; that he reigned for 17 years. And what his mother's name was—that really is all very standard stuff for the introduction to the reign of a king. But he slips in there something important. He says that he reigned in Jerusalem, which was the city of God, the city where God had chosen to place His name. And so the Lord is saying, no matter how bad things get, no matter how terribly the nation of Israel or Judah is going to turn away from the Lord, yet it doesn't affect that God still dwells with his people and that he dwells with his people specifically in the temple. Now, of course, we see in the New Testament that Jesus is the true temple. And that God dwells with us, no no matter how deeply we sin against Him, no matter how far we go astray, when we come back to the temple, when we come back to Christ, God is still with us, that there is grace for us. But what seems to be a a rather ordinary, what seems to be a a rather mundane and, and harmless introduction, is going to twist very quickly as soon as we get into verse 22, and become a a condemnation, a very negative report upon the people of Judah. Let's jump in there at verse 22. We'll read verse 22 to 24. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By the sins they committed, they stirred up his jealous anger more than their fathers had done. They also set up for themselves high places, sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill, and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So things are bad. Things are very bad. Things are worse than they had ever been before. And things have been pretty bad for Israel before. You remember when the Lord led the people of Israel out of Egypt and Moses had gone up on the mountain of God and God was speaking to him. The people thought Moses had been killed by God and they were, they were fretting and they say to Aaron, make some gods for us. And so Aaron takes all the gold and he makes a golden calf and the people worship the golden calf. That was pretty bad. And you go forward to the time of the judges and the people worshiped all kinds of idols. There was all kinds of chaos, civil chaos and religious chaos. That was pretty bad. And then you can move forward to the time of Solomon. Solomon had state-sponsored idolatry. That was pretty bad. But this is worse. This is worse than anything which has happened before. Now that's really saying something. Because if you go back to the, the story of Aaron making the golden calf for the people to worship, God had told Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and start with you. And God is more angry and more offended by the people of Judah here than he had ever been before. This is a very strong statement by the part of the author. And the reason, of course, is that there's rampant idolatry. And I want to look at a few of these forms of idolatry now because you're going to hear about these things again and again and again. You'll hear about high places and asherah poles and sacred stones. And so it would be good for us to start out with an understanding of what these idols are, even though some of them are are quite grotesque. So we we begin with the, the high places. Ironically, high places don't have to be high. They can really be anywhere. They're not high uh, as far as elevation goes. They're high as that they're, use, they're places used for worship. And these, these places could be used for worship of God, the true God, or they could be used for the worship of, of idols. But even if these places are used as places of worship for the true God, God is not pleased with them because God has said in his word that he was to be worshiped in Jerusalem. And so the people would go to these local places to sacrifice when God had said they were supposed to go to the central place of the temple to worship. And so even though they're worshiping the true God, God is not pleased because God cares not only who we worship, but how we worship. And this is not only an Old Testament truth, but New Testament as well. Paul talks often about how we are supposed to worship, even while we worship the one true God. But that's really the the most... Uh, mundane or, or benign or harmless form of these idolatries. The the next two are really quite disgusting. The, the next thing we see is that we have sacred stones. Now these stones are, are phallic symbols. They are made to resemble male genitalia. And it's at, these, it's at these sacred stones that people would worship the gods of the Canaanite fertility cults. It was believed that if you worship these fertility gods, these fertility gods would give you crops and harvest and rain and children. And so if you pleased these gods, you would get those things. If you displeased those gods, you would get drought and poor harvest and no children. And so the people would come together at these sacred stones to worship these fertility gods so that they would have provided for them everything that they needed. You know, ironically, in the, with the Canaanites, their idolatry was obsessed with having more children. And in our own day, our own forms of this kind of idolatry are obsessed with having fewer children. But we still have an obsession with determining ourselves against the will of God, as we'll look at in just a moment, how it is that we are to use our sexuality, or how it is that we are not to use Our sexuality. And then the the third thing we have is very similar. It's the Asherah pools. Asherah was a Canaanite goddess. She was a goddess of fertility. She was believed to be the wife or the favorite female companion of the Canaanite high god or the god Baal who was the storm god. And she was a goddess of love. And so she would be worshipped at these, these big poles. Sometimes they could just be trees that were set aside and designated as worship areas. Other times it'd be almost like uh, totem poles. you remember totem poles? They'd be carved with uh, different etchings and they'd be placed in the ground. And it was here that the people would worship in order to manipulate the gods into giving them what they wanted. And these last two forms of idolatry give the impression that the Israelites had become obsessed with fertility and with sex. And this explains why there are the male shrine prostitutes. Now when you say that there's male shrine prostitutes, it assumes that there are also female. If they're bad enough to have males, then the, the understanding in the, in the Jewish mind was that they would also have all kinds of these persons. Now these, these are men and women not forced into not forced into prostitution by poverty or war. They're religious prostitutes. And the idea was that intercourse here on earth at these sacred places would cause the gods to act similarly. And the result of divine intercourse was that out of the the ecstasy of the divine beings would come rain and crops and children. So, the more you engaged on the earth, the more the divine engaged and the more blessings you had. It's disgusting, isn't it? But you can see why to Israelites who were idolaters, who were not entirely devoted to God, it would be a very attractive cult. So, Israel has become extremely indulgent and sensuous. In fact, they had become just like the Canaanites who had been there before them. You know, the, under Joshua, the Israelites had driven the Canaanites out of the land. But it, it seems like the Canaanites get the last laugh because the Israelites have become Canaanites. And so they adopt all the sinful practices. But our, our society is not really quite so different, is it? I was just at, at uh, a local department store earlier this week picking up some things for the house, and I had a couple of the kids with me, and I, I wanted to like cover their eyes as I went to the checkout. Because you look at all the magazines on there, and it's, they're, they're covered with women in their underwear or men in very seductive poses with very little clothes on, meant to make the hearts of those who look go pitter-patter, and it's all full of advice for, for better intimacy. You almost wish your kids couldn't read when you go to the grocery store. You can't even go buy food without being bombarded by all kinds of very lewd images. And beyond that, we have a government which provides and pays for birth control for people that you can engage without having any consequences. And if that fails, you can exercise your constitutional right to terminating a pregnancy, so that you can engage and do whatever you please without any consequences. Our society is not really any different. And of course, if you challenge this religious orthodoxy, which our society accepts, you'll be called a heretic. Now, they won't use the word heretic. They'll use words like bigot or hater or misogynist. But the idea is the same. People are not so different now than they were 3,000 years ago, and it's no easier to be faithful to God in the midst of a sinful world now than it was 3,000 years ago. It's like the author of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. But the reference to the Canaanites is a very foreboding, uh, very dark and gloomy mention, because God had driven the Canaanites out of Canaan, and he's going to drive the jewish people out of judea as well and of course the people living in babylon would have known full well that's exactly what god did because they were among those who had been driven out of the promised land hoping hoping that one day they would be able to come back and so there are there are consequences to sin and it's no surprise then that the author goes right into those consequences as we look at verses 25 to 28 let's look at those together in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. He carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and assign these to the commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went to the Lord's temple, the guards bore the shields, and afterward, they returned them to the guardroom. The Lord had made a very simple deal, as we've heard before, with Solomon when he was dedicating the temple. Stay faithful to me, and I will stay faithful and preserve. You don't and I won't, and so it shouldn't be any surprise to us here that the Lord is keeping his word. Solomon wasn't faithful, and so now the Lord is going to keep his protection, take his protection away. So the Egyptian king comes with a very large army, a much larger army than Judah could muster, and he begins raiding all through the land, and he finally comes to Jerusalem. This is an invasion which is um, archaeologically verified. There's plenty of proof that this is historically true. And Shishak comes to Jerusalem and Rehoboam decides it's better to give this guy all my gold than to have him take my head off. And so he gets all the treasures, all the gold out of the entire city of Jerusalem, a very large amount. Solomon was very wealthy and handed down that wealth to Rehoboam. He takes all the gold and he gives it to the Egyptian king, so the Egyptian king will go away. And he even took the gold shields, the author says, that Solomon had made. He replaced them with bronze. The very simple idea here is that all the glory of Solomon's reign is gone. Gold turns to bronze. Peace turns to war. Strength gives way to weakness. The faithfulness of David's reign is gone, and along with it goes God's protection. But it's almost silly, isn't it? It's almost silly how Rehoboam acts. The gold is gone, okay let's just make some bronze shields. We'll act as if nothing has happened here. Nothing to see here. Things are the way they have always been. Instead of recognizing that God has disciplined him for his unfaithfulness, rather than coming back to God in repentance, he just tries to go on as if nothing has changed. I suspect that's true for many of us. We We recognize that there's a consequence to our sin, but instead of doing something about it, we just try to go on as if nothing has changed. We shouldn't be above seeing ourselves even in the foolishness of these characters. But the story ends on what seems to be another routine note, but really is anything but that. Look with me at verses 29 to 31. As for the other events of Rehoboam's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, And Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah, she was an Ammonite. And Abijah, his son, succeeded him as king. Rehoboam reigned, he fought some wars, he died, he was buried. Those things are written down in other books. Nothing to see here, right? But not really. See, the author slips in another very subtle thing for us which perhaps we would, be easily, we would easily miss, but to the, to the ancient reader would have been very obvious. He slips in the same line he had put in the introduction. He says his mother's name was Naamah, she was an Ammonite. It's typical to record the mother's name in the beginning of the description of the king's life, but it's very unusual to include it again at the end. And so I want to teach you a new word. It's a very simple word with a a very simple concept behind it. And the, the new word is inclusio. And it's very simple. It means when something begins with the same line and ends with the same line, that's called an inclusio. And everything in between is related to those things. In other words, when you see that first and last line, that's the main point. That's the author's main point. It tells you the point that the author is trying to make. In other words, the point here is that all of this, all the idolatry, all the losses in the battles, all the high places, the sacred stones, the Asherah poles, all the loss of Solomon's glory, all of it is because Solomon married an Ammonite. And he violated God's law. Solomon married too often. And he married very poorly. So the focus here is on Solomon's poor marriage. He married an Ammonite, something explicitly forgiven in Deuteronomy. And he married an idolater. And the wife that he had married gives birth to a son who is also an idolater, like mother, like son, and it leads to disaster. Solomon's foolish marriages led to the destruction of his own heart before God, to the tearing of his kingdom, to his own son's idolatry, to the removal of the glory, and then eventually to the death of his nation. His sin led to death. Isn't that exactly what James says? James says this, James 1, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Solomon's sin has brought forth death and will bring forth death for his kingdom. And his sin was marrying foolishly, contrary to God's Word. I have, I have beaten this drum very often, in the last five years with the youth group, perhaps outside of just simply being a follower of Jesus, I have talked about the topic of marriage more than anything else. We've talked about it here in the tan house. We've talked it around bonfires. We've talked about it in foreign states. And it's very, it's very simple because it, it matters to God who we marry. And who we, matter, who we marry matters in our lives. A spouse shapes a person. A spouse can help to spur a person on to faith and good works. Or a spouse may drag a person down into their own spiritual condition, which can be lazy or just perhaps having no faith at all. Choosing a a spouse is probably the second most important decision a person will make in their life only behind the decision to follow Christ. The Lord cares who we marry. And it's written all over the Scriptures that God cares who we marry. Let's just look at a a few examples. The first one comes from 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says this, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Only in the Lord means only to believers in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says this, Do we, talking about himself, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles? Only a believing wife. You go back to the Old Testament. Abraham sent a servant hundreds of miles away to find a believing woman for Isaac to marry so that he wouldn't marry someone who didn't believe in the one true God. And after the people had returned from exile and the prophet Ezra comes, he calls them to repent. And what's one form of their repentance? They begin putting away all of their idolatrous wives. There's the example of Adam and Eve. Everything that happens in Eden we should be extra focused on. Because Eden sets the pattern for all the rest of human existence. And when God was there, He made Adam, but Adam was alone. He said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So He, he creates Eve out of Adam's side, and then He creates her to be a helper. But to help with what? To help with Adam's God-given mission. And how can someone help with a God given mission unless they believe in God? Right? If you're, going to, if you're going to work together to pursue God, it's logical that you have to believe in God together as well. But then the most common passage that we would probably cite or bring to mind in talking about marriage, Christian marriage, comes from 2 Corinthians 6. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? That passage isn't only about marriage, but it certainly applies to marriage. Marriage is is the deepest, the most profound of all human relationships. So when we are married, we ought to marry only in the Lord. We take the lesson here. Solomon married poorly, and it has disastrous consequences. A couple of weeks ago when we were in Tennessee with the youth group, we were studying through Mark's Gospel. We came right in the middle of Mark's Gospel to Jesus' teaching on marriage. And, and we discussed in, in the importance of marriage that it's important for husbands to have more than a pension and a pulse, but they are to have faith and faithfulness and spiritual maturity. That it's important for wives to have more than a good figure. It's important for them to be faithful, to have faith, and to fear the Lord. Like the proverb says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So I just want to say it very plainly. Choosing a spouse is probably the second most important decision a person can make. So choose wisely. Wait. If you are not married yet and you would like to be, wait for a man or a woman who loves the Lord. Wait patiently for a man or a woman who will spur you on in faith and in faithfulness and in good works. Don't settle. Don't settle. And parents... Drive into your children from before they can even remember the importance of marrying somebody who loves Jesus. I, I, expect, I expect that many of you have a similar experience to me. You, you, maybe you have a, a little girl, she's two, and you're, she says, "Dad, I want to marry you." Right It's cute. I, 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 you hear that all the time, right? But of course you've got to tell them, you've got to break their hearts and say, "No, you can't marry me. I'm married to Mommy. Right? But then take the opportunity to say, one day you'll get married, and the man you marry needs to love Jesus. Right? It's it's perfect opportunity. There are so many opportunities when, with the children, even from their youth, to drive into their minds the importance of somebody who loves Jesus. And when they get older and they bring a boyfriend or a girlfriend home, ask the hard questions: Does he love the Lord? Does she know her Bible? Does she pray? Does he go to church? Ask the hard questions. Don't fall in love with Junior's girlfriend until you know whether Junior's girlfriend loves Jesus. We need to be diligent in the teaching and the training of our children so they don't become like Solomon and bring great disaster upon themselves and others. I want to note something, particularly for the young women. I have noticed and observed that there is a lack of godly men available for marriage. And for some reason or another, perhaps for any number of reasons, the church, along with the broader culture, is is raising men or not raising men who have a stunted development and a delayed adolescence. They can pass all the levels of the latest video game They tell you every level in Dungeons and Dragons. Maybe they can recite for you every player on the 1963 Chicago Cubs team, but they don't know the books of the Bible, and they can't tell you basic Bible stories. There is a lack of godly men out there. Now, men, you're in demand. So get yourself to be godly and fill in that gap. But for young women, you, you look and you look and you look, and you just don't find a man who's marriage material. Don't settle. It's not worth it. Wait. Wait for a man who will lead you and your family and care for you who loves Jesus. In the meantime, pray. Pray. Pray that the Lord would lead you a man who's just like that if you are so inclined, and then use the freedom God has given you in all kinds of ways with your time and your attention to serve the Lord faithfully while you wait. I, I, I have two daughters, maybe three. Naomi thinks I have three daughters. I'm not sure yet. She's been right four out of four times, so I, I kind of believe her. But I have at least two daughters, and I fully intend for my daughter's boyfriends to fear me. I, I want it to be a healthy, helpful terror, but I still want it to be a terror. I want them to be afraid to mess with my daughter. You have a Heavenly Father, and you deserve to have a man who fears your Heavenly Father. So don't forget that. But in marriages generally, in, in marriages generally, sometimes you come to a marriage and, and a marriage is unequally yoked, as Paul says. Sometimes it's really through no fault of, of anybody. Uh, perhaps one spouse is converted after marriage and, there's, and the other spouse just simply isn't. Maybe one spouse just simply grows much faster than the other spiritually and the other one is, is left behind. Perhaps it is somebody's fault. Maybe you, you fell in love with a nice smile or a, a nice resume or just simply fell in love with the idea of being married. No matter what it is, you, you find a, a marriage where there is an unequal yoking. Of course, yoking has sort of a, a cattle in, in implication. So I want you to picture with me a covered wagon, kind of like Oregon Trail style, right? And pulling that covered wagon are two oxen. And one is strong and big and beefy, and one is small and scrawny. And when they set off to pull this wagon, the big beefy one pulls harder than the small scrawny one. And so the wagon begins to turn as the big beefy one pulls harder than the small scrawny one. And in time, you just end up going in a great big circle. So it can be, for couples who are unequally yoked. So we want to do everything that we possibly can to avoid that situation. So I'd like to have a, a, few simple, a few simple things. The first is to marry well. Marry well. If you're, not, if you're not married currently, marry well. The second is that if you're a parent, insist that your children marry well. Nothing, nothing annoys me, well maybe some things, but very few things annoy me more than seeing a father who does not approve of who his daughter is marrying, but he's still going to pay for the wedding. You have all kinds of leverage. Use it, right? Use it. Make sure, do whatever you can to make sure that your children marry well. If your son is getting married, expect from him answers to the hardest questions make sure that he is not making a mistake. Now, if you are unequally yoked already and you are the stronger spouse, don't nag. Nagging doesn't work. But pray. Pray for an increase in zeal. Pray for an increase in prayer. Pray that your spouse would grow in maturity and in a love for the Lord. Pray and encourage. Don't nag. Encourage. But maybe you're in a marriage and you recognize that you are the weaker spouse. You know, if an, if an ox wants to beef up, he eats. And he eats, and he eats, and he eats. And so you need to eat. And the word of the Lord is food. Spiritual food. So you need to eat and eat. And if someone wants to grow in strength, they exercise. And so you need to exercise. Exercise prayer. Exercise going to church. Exercise in scripture study. Exercise in all of the spiritual disciplines. Maybe you recognize that you're not the mature spiritual spouse in the marriage. Okay. So we need to admit it. And then we need to do something about it. We need to do whatever it takes to get to a point where I'm not dragging my spouse down, but instead I'm at a position where we are urging each other forward. We need to get off the spiritual butt, so to speak, and get out there and be strong. As strong as we possibly can that we might urge each other forward in faithfulness. Marriage is God's good gift to His people. It's one of His first gifts to His people. And we know that marriage ultimately is a picture of Jesus' love for His church. That at the resurrection, there will be no more marrying or giving in marriage. Because Christ will be with His church. And the purpose of marriage will be fulfilled. And so we need to honor marriage. And we need to honor the Lord. And we honor marriage and we honor the Lord by not falling into the sin of Solomon and seeing its consequences, but by marrying well with a deep, abiding desire to glorify God in our marriages. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes Your Word... It's frightening because we recognize ourselves in it more than we would like, and oftentimes we recognize ourselves not in the heroes of the story, but in the tragic characters of the story. And so we we pray that you would cause us not to fall into the sin of Rehoboam or into the sin of Solomon but instead that You would help us to be obedient to the Word, that we would be like Abraham, going to great lengths to secure a believing spouse. We pray that You keep us free from the the sinfulness of the people of Judah. That as they made all kinds of poles and sacred stones and, and high places in their idolatry, we pray that we wouldn't do that. That we would stay focused on Christ. That we would worship You only in Christ. Keep us free from idols. The Scripture says, flee from idolatry. So cause us to flee wherever we see it. We ask for Your blessing upon us. Strengthen our marriages. Give wisdom to those who are hoping and waiting to be married. Give patience to the young women as they look for a man who is mature. And who can lead them. And give maturity to our young men. That they might be a good and faithful spouse when the time comes. And we ask that You would build Your church. Build this church. We would be faithful. And stand ever on Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.